Welcome to St. Thomas Crooks, also known as STC Sheffield. My name's Tom, I'm the vicar. We are very formal. And uh, no, you're just, just relax. just grateful you, you can be with us today. And let me just say what we're doing. So over the past couple of weeks, we, we journey through um, a series called Exiles and Ambassadors. Um, why? We believe that we're in a season of exile. People who follow Jesus, the church is in a season of exile. What, that, what does that mean? It means that we no longer occupy what it is to be the, the majority, as those with Christian faith. And actually that then ties us into a whole swathe of the Old Testament. Um, and we're looking at a particular character called Nehemiah. But yet within that, as we are created in the image of God, we're also called to have an ambassadorial function, which means we are created to, to represent God. And that's what he does. As we encounter Jesus, we believe we're made in the image of God. That's really sometimes quite difficult for us to get our head around. But as he transforms us by his spirit, we become more like Jesus and we step into the calling to be ambassadors. So in the evening, we're tracking that through the Acts of the Apostles because we're trying to see one of the things that, that, that the Apostle Paul does is he plants communities of faith, churches like embassies. An ambassador is a representative of one nation to another nation and often functions from an embassy. And the weird thing about an embassy, although it's in one country, it is under the jurisdiction of another country. And so when we talk about church planting, and just to make it really confusing for everybody, next week we're having an offering for the Nehemiah Fund, which we're launching. And as I said in a video last week, here's a little document called the the Nehemiah Fund FAQs. Folks, that is a a very sexy title. I think we'll all agree. And there's there's a lot of very, if you can't get to sleep at night, and if you like detail, this will say, why are we doing it? Where's the money going? But here's the thing, folks. Let me just give you a taste. Essentially, because when we believe that God's people meets, two or three, the Holy Spirit, the the Bible says the Holy Spirit is present. Kind of an embassy of hope, of God's presence, of, of belonging to another place where there's transformation and healing and change. Steady on, don't get too excited. I'll calm it down. Because and that's what we believe we're called to do in the city of Sheffield, is to release and plant churches working with the diocese, the Anglicans and the Baptists. We're both an Anglican and a Baptist church. I said before, this part's Anglican, that part's Baptist. Okay, thank you. Good night. See, Joel, that's how not to do it, mate. Um, because we just feel all that God's given us, we need to give away. That's it, folks. Let's turn, if you can, to the book of Nehemiah, and we are journeying through... Uh, chapter 6. I've got a few too many things on this lectern, but anyway, let's work it out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read bits of it, and then um, I'm going to stop. Uh, I'm going to talk through it, and then I'll read a bit more, and then we're going to kind of land. And uh, this is, I'm kind of just, we've been thinking about calling. So God speaks to Nehemiah. He's a slave under a man called Artaxerxes, fantastic name. And he's um, got a call to see Jerusalem Rebuilt. That's why we've launched in the Nehemiah Fund, because we feel we're called to play our part in the restoration of the kingdom in various parts of this city. And so he calls this man Nehemiah, who is in a really, it seems unbelievable that God could ever do what he's asking him to do, but he does. And Nehemiah spends four months praying and fasting and crying out to God to, to, for God to use him, and he does. And he, so he's in this call, and he stows to Jerusalem. He becomes a governor. He's rebuilding the wall. And then what we see is a couple of chapters. That is really contested through kinds of battle. 
that people are, uh, come out against him, they are anti him, they do their best to dissuade him, to stop him. The physical threats of violence, it gets really intense. And then we see that no matter, despite the challenges, that God is faithful. And, the, and by the time we get to chapter 6, the wall is almost built. But then there is another wave of persecution, almost another wail of oppression, another wail? There's no whales in here. That's the other guy, Jonah. Another wave of attack. And of course, we believe that behind that is the enemy of God. And we see within Scripture, throughout the arc of Scripture, it's not necessarily in Nehemiah, but often in the Old Testament, around this period of the exile, particularly in the New Testament, that behind this, behind this is the enemy of God himself, who is trying his best to stop Nehemiah doing what it is that God has called him to do. So he sees that his call is to restore Jerusalem, and then we see that this is massively contested. And I think Nehemiah is an absolutely fascinating character. I found um, it's, I love to kind of geek it up, actually. I love to read the commentaries. Uh, not that you can tell, but um, which is some, often men, not always, but people with big beards pouring over the minutiae of the Hebrew. And I find it really fascinating. I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful book of the Bible. It's kind of Nehemiah's memoirs of painful times and yet God intervening in the most amazing way. And it's the most beautiful thing. And I think this particularly, maybe it's just a personal thing for me, is really profound at the moment. So I'm going to read this to us. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. When the word came to Sambalat, there he is again. Okay. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Gresham, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Gresham sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the answer. Okay, so here's Sam Ballot. Um, we said before once he's like an Ikea desk, got the same kind of name, hasn't he? And he is the governor of a place called Samaria. And he's a really political kind of guy, okay? So he would have been part of probably Babylon, and so he's got a position of real power, and he knows how to play the system. Do you ever work with people like that? No? They just say the right thing to the right people at the right time. God bless those people. And they manage to get promoted, folks, don't they? Kind of, they kiss the derriere, kiss people's backsides. They just know what it is to say. And I wonder whether he's that kind of character because what he's doing is his intention is to try and draw Nehemiah away. What, what we know is that Nehemiah has got a ragtag group of people to rebuild the war in a really quick space of time. It's absolutely miraculous. And yet there's one thing that remains left to be done. And in the gates in Jerusalem, these beautiful kind of massive big gates. When we talk about a gate, don't think a gate at home, a wooden gate. Think, think like you imagine you go to the city of York, beautiful old building, and you get these big archways. It's called a gate. But yet the doors have not been set, so there's still an element of vulnerability. And so Sam Ballot is kind of, he's capitalizing on that moment. And he's drawn, because he's a really smart political thinker, he knows that if he, as a governor, 
reaches out to another governor by the kind of laws of Persia, he knows that Nehemiah has to respond. He has to respond. And so he's thinking, well, I shall just draw on the law and kind of politics, and I shall call him to me. But Nehemiah is as savvy as as he's just a really smart guy because he knows that earlier Sambalat has been, earlier in chapter 4, has been part of a movement to try and physically attack them. So he's not stupid in any, by any stretch of the imagination. But there, he knows that there is this plan to neutralize him. And we know that Sambala is doing his best to lure him away. The plain of Ono. Where the heck is the plain of Ono? It's miles away outside of Jerusalem. And so he, Nehemiah knows if he goes there, he has got no backup. He is totally out of his jurisdiction. And whilst he's there, he knows that they're not going to kill him, most probably, but they could do all kinds of stuff to him. They could bribe him, they could trap him, and he knows it's not where he's meant to be. So the first thing that we can learn from this moment in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah says four times, I'm not going to come. He's polite, but he's clear, I'm not going to come. Nehemiah's strategy is to resist Sanballat's desires to try and trap him. James 4.7 says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. So Nehemiah politely declines. He commits to the call of God. God has called him to rebuild the wall. As these kind of requests for a meeting come from somebody who is very savvy, politically operated, Nehemiah does what it is he's called to do, and he resists. He just keeps walking in his call. He's committed to the call. I don't know, maybe there's somebody at work who's maybe making a complaint about you, or there's somebody who gets under your skin, who's just aggravating you, or there's a situation that is just driving you crazy right now, maybe with a neighbour, or there's some challenging situation there is folks as people come close to us and as people kind of try and draw us in and engage us there is a temptation always to defend ourselves there's a temptation to try and give an explanation to justify what it is we're doing but you see there's something about Nehemiah is he has a deep seated confidence he doesn't do it he resists. Maybe there's, maybe there's stuff in life where we're some unhelpful habits that we've got into, maybe over lockdown, that nobody else knows about. And when the enemy comes prowling, you just feel yourself being drawn back. Resist him, and he'll flee from you. Timothy Keller, I always quote Timothy Keller, I, I love him, he's, I think he's such a great writer. I'm all for learning from wise people. I just, I just kind of read their stuff and pass it off as my own, really, if I'm brilliant. But if you know him, you'll, you'll, you'll be on to me. And he describes, if you get an old piano, we've got one out the back, actually, what is now Heather's office, and uh, most of the days there, she is knocking out the tunes. Da, 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 no. Um, if, <laughs> Heather, get praying, come on. We take, if you take the top off and expose the strings, you see all the little hammers. If you make a really loud noise, like, ah, like that, which Heather doesn't do, for the, in case you're wondering, that would be odd. Um, there's a reverb. It reverbs. And so Timothy Keller says, when he talks about how, how, how it, the enemy's strategy is often, as, as, as he comes close to us, the things within us 
which are not always healthy. They kind of reverb. So, so I wonder, for, for, for me, if, 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 I was, if I was Nehemiah, I feel like I'd need to justify myself. Well, I, I want to meet because I just want to talk to you because I've been asked to do the war, so if you don't mind, we won't meet. Uh, you know, he feels this, that there is no, I, I would, if I was Nehemiah, I'd want to say to somebody, look, man, I'm really sorry I can't meet for the, these reasons. He doesn't do any of that because he's clear and confident in the call of God on his life. And that's what he does. There's no sense of insecurity in his position, even though Sambal is doing his absolute best to try and control him and actually to try and manipulate him. He's just confident in the call of God upon his life. And it's that call that keeps him putting one foot in front of the other. A couple of months ago, about six, I got an email from Bishop Rick Thorpe, who we had speaking here a couple of weeks ago in, in September. And he said, you've been selected as part of a, a group of 20 leaders. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm interested. 20 leaders, I've been selected. Right, you've got my attention now. And we think, you've been selected to do a D-min, doctor of ministry. Wow, wow, I could be doctor. Wow, I could put it on my bank cards. Now I've got three C's at GCSE, folks. So wouldn't that be awesome? I could stand on a platform and say, oh, so I'm in. Because it's chimed with an insecurity. If it's like a piano, and our life is like a piano string, and ching, it's chimed, I'm in. I'm a little closer. I'm like, could I do this? Closer, could I? No, you're joking. What are you doing? You can live in the shed if you do. <laughs> Actually, that might not be bad. Uh, does that mean I won't have to do a bedtime? <laughs> I was saying, what do I do? Wouldn't it be great? I was so tempted. I was so drawn to it. I thought it would be, it would be feel like it would be such a justification of healing and from background and stuff. And so I, I thought I'll write to the bishop because he's, he's my boss, actually. And I said, Bishop Pete, I, what, would I, what, what do you think I should do? And he said, don't do it. You've got a young family and you've just taken on church. Why would you do it? And I thought, why do I need a piece of paper to justify something in there. There was a wound. And when that kind of temptation came, I don't think it, it was the enemy of God, Rick Thorpe, if you watching it at all, it was, it was a wonderful thing, but it was an enticement, non-investment. And so when the opportunity comes to Nehemiah, he's like, no, this is my call. You know, when I get to glory, I don't think, you know, I really wish I'd done a demon. I think it would have changed my life. Maybe more people might have encountered Jesus. I don't think it really will, folks. But saying yes to what God wants and no to temptation might keep me, God willing, on the call that God's placed. The second thing we read then is it goes on. In verse five, it's, in verse six it says this, um, Samballat tries another trick. So the fifth time he writes to Nehemiah, he says, he sent an aide with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. What is an unsealed letter? That is like at work a reply to all. It is like getting really angry and venting on a blog. It's like pouring out your heart on Facebook or social media. And this is what he says. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation that about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come and let us meet together. 
Verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. (laughs) Go on, Nehemiah, son. (laughs) They are, and this is what he says. This is his memoir. So listen to this. He says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, oh, now strengthen my hands. Okay, what's going, what's going on here? There's an unsealed letter accusing him of an insurrection. They're accusing him of trying to make himself king. Nothing could be further from the truth. But yet there is some truth. Because God has called Nehemiah to restore, to restore Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the, the, fat, the kind of central point in Israel, that Jesus will inhabit And so in some senses, there is some truth to it, but it's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah's call is not to become that. And it shows the character of Nehemiah that he doesn't, yeah, you know, I'm building this, I quite fancy being a king, looks decent, shall I give it a go? No. And what Nehemiah does in the face of this blatant lie, let's let's put this, okay, the king Artaxerxes, he's not the most releasing guy. When you run an operation like that and you've accumulated that kind of power, you don't do well with insurrections. In fact, you generally kill people who do that stuff. And so it's absolutely devastating and has the propensity to totally derail the whole mission because that's what's happened before in Ezra when Artaxerxes gets wind of these guys starting some stuff, then he shuts it down. And so if it was me, if I'd been Nehemiah, I would be sweat, I'd be on the WhatsApp, please pray, massive spiritual battle. Oh, shit, about somebody. It would be like a nightmare situation. I'd want to do my best to stop it, maybe have a conversation. How could we do it? What can we do? Yeah, I'll agree to your terms. I mean, it, it is a moment that could derail everything. It is such a low moment in Nehemiah's journey. And Nehemiah's got this kind of internal confidence and my says, just tells the truth. I love it. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. You see, if there's like a political spirit. What do I mean by that? like a political mindset? It means that you generally say things that you f- in a way that they're heard, which means you fudge the truth. We've all worked in environments like that. You know that you can, what you, you know what you want to say, but you know you can't say it. So you say what you feel you need to say, either to protect your reputation or protect your job. And Nehemiah doesn't do that. He just tells the truth in the most incredible way. Truth brings freedom. Matthew 10, 27 talks about, you shout from the rooftops what's whispered in quiet places. So Nehemiah's like, you bring it. You, you go to him. You do whatever you do, but you are not tender. I'm going to stand on truth. He doesn't try and fix it. He doesn't try and cook a deal. He doesn't try and, and, and kind of work it somehow that Sambalat gets his way. He, he doesn't fudge it. He just tells the truth. And then verse 8, then... Um, then, then to the end in verse 9 he says, now strengthen my hands. That is a heart cry prayer of weakness, of I cannot do this. We see it in the earlier part of Nehemiah, strengthen my hands. 
It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of, God, this is about you. I cannot do this on my own. Nehemiah has refused every opportunity to step in and fix some stuff himself. Every time a challenge comes, he's like, God, I need you to do it. That is the heart of humility. And that is what is revealed in Nehemiah. He throws himself back on God in the most beautiful and amazing way. And then he says this, verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah. He's having a rough time of it, folks. He really is. Now you'd think Shemaiah is a prophet, one of his own. Jewish is going to be good. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deleah. This is terrible for a dyslexic. I'm butchering the names. They're all dead anyway. But anyway, um, the son of Methabel who was shut in at home, he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us choose the temple doors because men, listen to this, because men are coming to kill you. By night they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat, here we go, it's that guy at work again, had hired him. And he'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And they'd give me a bad name to discredit me. Oh, it's heartbreaking stuff. It's designed to instill fear. People are coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They're after you. What's the... It said that um, if you're into Myers-Briggs personality, maybe you're not, and I I get why, or Jungian typology, I get it, it's not from the Bible, I know, I get all that stuff. But it says, it often says the way we interpret information is feelers can be prone to fear. That's the thing that does it for me. I've got to have a lump removed on my face, uh, the suspected skin cancer. You know, I said, it's just a potential skin cancer, I'm not worried. Oh, my days, this is it, Lord. Or some people for failure, if they're a T personality. Like, like one of those things, often in spiritual battle, we get exploited. So if, 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 if you like to succeed and you feel you're failing, that will take you to a difficult place. Or if fear, the sense of death, or something that happens to your kids, it's just in a sense of fear. So this is designed to make Nehemiah get fearful. And then Shemaiah offers him an option. Come and seek sanctuary in the temple. David did it. Now, what would have happened if he'd done it? I tell you, what would have happened if he'd done it is that he'd have got a reputation for defiling the temple. And the whole of the Jewish people would have been like, you are not somebody I can follow. And so it's a very test of his integrity. And Nehemiah refuses it. He doesn't choose self-protection. He doesn't choose fear. He chooses courage, actually. What I'm supposed to feel fearful is we choose courage should a man like me run away he chooses integrity and principle Nehemiah knows that he can't go into the temple he knows he's not part of the priestly class he doesn't fall for it he knows it's designed to discredit him that the Sambalat and Tobiah those two snakes have set him up and it's somebody that should have been his friend and there's a deep sense in that moment of isolation question his integrity Nehemiah doesn't doesn't try and fix situations himself he has a heart of humility he doesn't defend himself he has a heart of humility trust the Exodus 14 14 that God will fight for you if only to be still 
it's very tempting as a leader for it all to become about us. Do you know, I've only been in this job properly since May. I get invited to all kinds of stuff. It's part of me just thinks, well, hello. Well, I quite like that. You will be invited to an next... Because the church is often so different from the world. Honestly. Honestly, seriously. You've been invited to a select group. It's like, oh, because it plays... It plays on insecurity, doesn't it? It kind of draws us in. And after a while, you start to think, well, this can become about me and my identity, and this becomes an extension of me. That is dangerous, folks. I'm married to a wonderful woman who gives me good feedback. So there is, you know, be encouraged. I do have people I'm accountable to, and a combination of the Holy Spirit and my wife. Oh, it's powerful, folks. It really is. It really is. I realized when I was in Cambridge, when I was vicaring down there for a season, work as an associate with a legendary Anne McLaurin, I realised I'd gone off the ball, folks, in my leadership journey when I watched a video, a conversation with Mike Pilavachi, who I love, and Nikki Gomolo, who I love. And in the conversation, they talk about Jesus so much. And I thought, I don't feel I'm doing that as much as I should. I feel when I'm speaking, I'm talking about vision, I'm counting numbers. Are we doing all that we should be doing? And yet there they were, just speaking profoundly about Jesus. What is it about Nehemiah that, ha- that means he can do what he can do. What is it about him? What is it about that integrity of walk and that heart, that confidence? I think it's because Nehemiah is a friend of God. Now, what does that mean? Let me unpack that in just a moment and I'll finish. If I say to, if I say to us, guys, wouldn't it be amazing to ask, how, how are we getting on with our quiet times? I bet there'd be a kind of rolling of the eyes and you just feel the guilt beginning to weigh up more and more and more and more and more. Hey, getting on with telling people about Jesus. Oh, let's go over here. What about praying five times a day? Yeah, see you, all the best. <laughs> no, you're not, not me, forget it. That sense in which, oh man, you're always asking us to do so much stuff. You're always asking us to do more stuff in church. I'm knackered. I just come to church, you're always making us feel guilty. It's not good. And then I read this book, because sometimes I feel that, and I think, well, I'm the leader. What are you saying it for then? And I read this book. A mate of mine wrote it, my mate Bill Cusack. Somebody asked me if I meant Bill Johnson. No, I didn't. Bill Cusack. And he works with a guy called Pete Gregg for 24-7 prayer. And this is what he, this is what he said. And this got me. He he listened to a preacher once, and this preacher described something. He said, we get up in the morning, we go for a run, we get home, and we'll have a coffee, and we'll read the paper together, and then we'll get ready for work and go to work together. And often during the day, if there's something I'm not sure about, we'll talk about it. And my mate Bill, writing in his book, which is a beautiful book, and I recommend for Advent reading, it's called That Gentle Whisper. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. He's listening to it, he thinks he's talking about his wife or his husband or... um, or his other, or whatever. And he realizes he's talking about Jesus. And it stirs my mate Bill's heart. He says, I want to walk with Jesus like that. If we put it like this, if God in Jesus is your best friend who loves you passionately, then throughout the day, what's it look like to check in with a mate? I, I've got some mates that I WhatsApp or I send gifts. Alan Ward is a lot funnier on WhatsApp than he is in person. Let me just say that to you now, folks. His gifts are absolutely brilliant. And he's not here, so I feel I can say. He's a, he's a very funny guy on WhatsApp. I'm like, mate, bring it out, brother. We'd love to see it more. 
There's other people, you know, you just, with friends, you, they see your life and they're for you and they're with you. And yet there's a moment in scripture, that's what it describes that Jesus is. And yet when we talk about connecting through the day, like, now nah, I've got too much on. And he's like, but you're with him all the time anyway. Why not just check in with him? And say, Jesus, what do you want me to do in this situation all right now? I'm, now, yesterday morning, my wife, God bless her, she raises something with me in the moment that we need to do. I'd love to say to you, I said, Clarissa, that is of the Lord. We will action it. I was like, don't tell me about this. Why are you telling me about this? You're making me very stressed. I'm, I'm learning this stuff as much as anybody else. Thank you, Joyce. <laughs> but there's something about knowing that you, if you're coming in today, you feel guilty because you haven't done enough for him. Maybe your Bible's gathering dust. And you just feel, I just come in, I just feel guilty. I'm not doing. That is not the gospel of Jesus. That's the gospel of works. And Jesus says, I love you. I poured out my life for you. You are with me. I am with you. Just enjoy my presence each on every day. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh gosh, what time is it? I sometimes say, hello Lord, how are you doing? What do you want to do today? Should we pick up your book? What do you want to teach me today, Lord? Because he's a friend. Read another beautiful book. I always got loads of books on the go. I never, I never finish them, folks. This is another one called Gentle and Lowly. I'll read this and then we'll finish. What if you had a friend at the centre of the bullseye of your relationship circle whom you knew would never raise his eyebrows at what you share with him? Even the worst parts of you. All our human friendships have a limit to to what they can withstand. But what if there were a friend with no limit? No ceiling on what he would put up with and still want to be with you. All the kinds and degrees of friendship like that meet in Christ. Consider the depiction of the rivers in Christ in Revelation 3. There he says to a group of Christians who are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what will Christ do? I will come in to him, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to come into you, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked you, and enjoy meals together, spend time with you, deepen the acquaintance with a good friend. You don't need to constantly fill in all the gaps of silence with words. You can just be warmly present together, quietly relishing each other's company. Mutual communion is the soul of true friendship, wrote Goodwin. And familiar converse with a friend has the greatness, sweetness in it. We should not overly domesticate Jesus here. He's not just, a, he's not just any friend. A few chapters early in Revelation, we see a depiction of Christ so overwhelming to John that he falls down, immobilized. But neither should we dilute the humanness, the sheer relational desire clearly present in these words from the mouth of the risen Christ himself. He isn't waiting for you to trigger his heart. 
He's already standing at the door knocking, wanting to come in to you. What's our job? Our duty is to accept Christ's inviting of us. This is an amazing sentence. What will we do for him if we will not feast with him? So I've reflected on Nehemiah. I'm going to ask the band to come out. I reflect on Nehemiah. I've just astounded the level of contest and battle he goes through and the sense in which he's firm in God. And I think, folks, as I've been praying, I wonder if, if the Lord Jesus wants to deconstruct a little bit of religious thinking that floats about, which is that you really need to earn your salvation, and that is the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus, which is he gifts it to you because he loves you. And he wants to bring freedom into your life. And as we walk with him, knowing that he's with us always and invites us to journey with him as he brings healing and change. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, oh, I haven't done a quiet time. Oh, I haven't done this. Do you know that's religious thinking? Nehemiah is not drawn into religious thinking. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't kind of seek to sort himself out. That's often a bit of an orphan kind of heart, which is often associated with a religious mind. So I've got to justify myself. Nehemiah doesn't justify himself to anybody because God's called him and God's for him. And yet I wonder if Jesus wants to do a work in our hearts today, a freedom that we may know him, as the scripture tells us, as a friend.